everything I've learned along the way around the needs of the disability community and the visits that I made to various uh, places around the country helped educate me and helped me make better policy. Coming up on The Dispatch, your questions for Andy Slavitt, former acting administrator of the Centers for Medicare and Medicaid Services and leader of the team which repaired healthcare.gov after its highly publicized problematic rollout. Slavitt is an outspoken critic of partisan efforts to dismantle healthcare, and his unrelenting advocacy has earned him a whopping 139,000 Twitter followers. Andy Slavitt clearly isn't giving up on healthcare without a fight, and he joins us here today on the first edition of The Dispatch from the Disability Rights Education and Defense Fund, that's D-R-E-D-F, to take questions from the disability community. I'm your host, Lawrence carter Law. The underlying thread in all of DreadUp's healthcare policy work and litigation for more than a decade now has been to ensure that people with disabilities can get in the doors and on the exam tables of medical providers and to obtain and maintain public and private insurance coverage of essential services that are used by disabled people. There has been no greater threat to the delivery of these services than recent attempts by the GOP to repeal key provisions of the Affordable Care Act. The latest proposal to eliminate Obamacare as we know it, written by Senators Lindsey Graham, Republican South Carolina, and Bill Cassidy, Republican Louisiana, seeks to turn federal health insurance funding into state block grants, thereby limiting essential Medicaid funding for long-term supports and services that people with disabilities rely on to do things like go to school, work, and even get out of bed, go to the bathroom, or eat. Last week, Jill Jacobs of Virginia and Karen Scallon of Louisiana had some questions about how the latest of seemingly never-ending efforts by the GOP to repeal the Affordable Care Act would affect people with disabilities, and they posted them to Facebook. That got us wondering, what would former CMS head Andy Slavitt think about that? And so, we asked him. The following interview was recorded on Wednesday, September 20th at 7.30 a.m. Pacific. Depending on when you listen, things may have changed and probably have. What do we know as of right now? We know that according to a spokesperson for Senate Majority Leader Mitch McConnell, Republican Kentucky, that the Senate intends to vote on Graham Cassidy as early as next week in an attempt to beat the September 30th deadline. We know that Graham Cassidy allows insurance companies to discriminate against people with pre-existing conditions, that's code for disability, by forcing us to pay more for the same care other people get for sometimes thousands of dollars less. What good is health care insurance that you can't afford? It's good for nothing. Literally. We know that Graham Cassidy cuts health care funding for states by $4 trillion, that's with a T, including vital long-term supports and services for children and adults with disabilities, including mental health care. And we know that Graham Cassidy eliminates health care coverage for 32 million Americans, 15 million in the next year alone. On this, the first edition of The Dispatch, we talk with former acting administrator of the Centers for Medicare and Medicaid Services, Andy Slavitt, about how these concerns stand to harm millions of Americans with disabilities. Thanks for joining us. It's great to be here, Lawrence. Thanks for having me. Let's get right to it. Our first question is from R.A. Nyamon from MySupport.com. Hi, this is Ari Nyamon with MySupport.com. Andy, as you know, over the last two decades, 
people with disabilities have benefited from the expansion of Medicaid-funded home and community-based services. With Graham-Cassidy threatening to severely restrict access to Medicaid funds, what should we expect about the consequences for people with disabilities, seniors, and families across the country? Well, this is a great, great question, Ari. Thank you for asking it. Uh, so, unfortunately, the Graham-Cassidy bill has a very significant impact on federal funding uh, to care for people living with disabilities. In fact, over the next 20 years, Graham-Cassidy would cut 15% of all federal funds uh, to go to people with disabilities. Uh, and that, that simply means that people who are uh, benefiting from home and community-based services um, would just simply have to have those services cut. Or worse, um, people would not be afford to be able to afford to be living independently. So this uh, element of Graham-Cassidy that I wish had been getting more thought and consideration. Next question is from our friend and colleague from the Center for American Progress and Off Kilter, Rebecca Vallis. Hey, Andy, it's Rebecca Vallis, host of Off Kilter. Appreciate you taking questions from Lawrence about the latest zombie Republican effort to repeal the Affordable Care Act and decimate Medicaid. We keep hearing Republican proponents of the bill say that somehow it's going to help people with disabilities and that Medicaid expansion has actually been hurting people with disabilities. I know that's a myth, but I'd love to hear you talk a little bit more about why we shouldn't listen to them when they say that. You know, I think one of the tactics of the proponents of the bill is very simply to pit people against one another and to say, you know, we can't make people healthier uh, and expand coverage from people um, uh, because we're going to hurt other people. And that's simply not true. You know, this country, when we're at our best, is not a zero-sum game. The very specific thing you're talking about, Rebecca, uh, related to um, a, a just simply a lie that was made up uh, about the Ohio Medicaid program. Governor Kasich, who, as many of you know, is a Republican, as well as Republicans and Democrats from across the state, uh, objected uh, to that characterization, uh, which was basically that, that uh, people were going to have longer uh, waiting lists um, if, because of Medicaid expansion, when it turned out, of course, that that uh, wasn't true at all. So, um, you know, we're past the point of being able to trust the rhetoric of people who want to repeal the Affordable Care Act. Next up, we have a question from Julia Bascom of the Autistic Self-Advocacy Network of an often ignored aspect of health care repeal. Hi, my name is Julia Bascom. I'm with the Autistic Self-Advocacy Network. Nearly 30% of people on the Medicaid expansion have a mental health diagnosis, a substance use disorder diagnosis, or both. What would this Graham-Cassidy bill mean for their access to care? Well, this is a great question because Graham-Cassidy does is it, is it takes one of the most important features of the Affordable Care Act, which is that um, we have a set of defined benefits that includes mental health services that everybody gets no matter what when you buy an insurance policy. What Graham-Cassidy would allow for is back to the days of Swiss cheese policies where insurance companies will decide what to cover and people will have to figure it out. So that's one, I think, uh, a really significant part of this, of this bill. The second thing is I think, um, you know, because Medicaid funding would get cut by over a trillion dollars, we have to remember that substance abuse disorders 
um, they're treated, 30% of the treatment comes from Medicaid treatments. So this is going to devastate our ability uh, to deal with substance uh, use disorders. Uh, you know, and I, and I, I just make, make a final point that uh, when it comes to um, all of these cuts and all of these services, um, the ability for uh, people for us to afford to you know, invest in things that help integrate care, that make behavioral services and physical services possible, um, you know, will be, will be wiped away. And so I think this is uh, sadly a very traumatic uh, impact on uh, people who rely on mental health services and mental health medications. It's a sadly ignored aspect of uh, marginalized communities within the disability community that really deserves a lot more attention. I agree. Next up, we have a question from ADAPT, the direct action disability rights group that really uh, did protests and sit-ins, keeping this issue alive while the rest of the country caught up. This is Erica from ADAPT. Hi, this is Erica Jones. I am from Rochester, ADAPT in Rochester, New York. And my question is, how will the proposed bill impact long-term services and support for people with the most significant disabilities who want to live in the community? Will this bill reinforce the institutional bias in Medicaid tends to push disabled Americans into institutions instead of being able to receive services we need in the community? Well, first of all, I want to uh, give my thanks to the uh, ADAPT team and the tremendous leadership and the tremendous work that they've shown. Uh, it's made a huge difference and a huge impact. And this question uh, picks on something that is uh, exactly, exactly right, which is when states get their funds cut, and I'll repeat this, I said it earlier, 15% of spending on people with disabilities will go away under Graham-Cassidy. When that happens, um, the first services that I think states will tend to cut will be home and community-based services, and that will uh, push people back into institutions. And, you know, and I think as the ADAPT team has educated me over the years when I was in the Obama administration, um, the funding is barely enough uh, as it is as it exists today to uh, to provide enough services uh, for people who need them with with uh, personal care and all their home care needs. So uh, this will uh, take a situation which already I think is not where we want it to be and put it in significant hardship. Founder of the Disability Visibility Project, board member of the Disability Rights and Education Defense Fund, and Twitter icon in her own right, S.F. Dyer Wolf, Alice Wong, has the next question. Hi, Eddie. My name is Alice Wong. I'm a disabled person who receives Consumer Directed Medicaid, HCBS, in California. I follow you on Twitter, and thanks for your tweets about the ACA. They're really informative. I'd like to share your thoughts about the Disability Integration Act, a bill that has bipartisan support in the House, and how it intersects with Graham Cassidy and other efforts to dismantle Medicaid. Well, hi, Alice. Uh, and Alice uh, is one of my, actually one of the, uh, my favorite Twitter followers. Uh, I read her tweets a lot uh, and is in one of the um, groups that I've set up to make sure that I know what's going on. Uh, in the real world, uh, and so Alex is terrific. I mean, uh, look, this is a matter of civil rights uh, and protecting civil rights, and I think um, we cannot allow ourselves to go backwards. And I think 
uh, you know, cutting 15% uh, of care of costs for people with, living with disabilities is an enormous step backwards. I- integrating folks into the community, giving them rights, uh, is the direction that I thought we were headed as a country and that we need to head as a country and we need, we need to head there quickly. And I'm grateful to Alice for all her work in this area. As an activist, I'd say that uh, effective advocacy has as much to do with strategy as it has to do with policy. And for a question on how we move forward, here's Steve Kay from the University of California, San Francisco. Hi, this is Steve Kay from the University of California, San Francisco. How do we convince Congress that Medicaid home and community-based services are the solution and not the problem? Thank you. I'll tell you what I think. I think personal stories are what convinces people better than anything. Uh, and I think this is what uh, ADAPT and, and many of the other disability rights organizations do so well. Um, you know, I often ask people uh, if they know anybody on Medicaid, if I'm do, doing a town hall or something. And you know, some of the hands go up and some don't. Uh, but then I ask people if they know anybody that uh, any families where there's someone in, in a wheelchair. And they'll say, well, in fact, I do. Uh, and, and there's a, a family across the street that has a child in a wheelchair. And I'll say, well, well how do you think um, the mom gets a shower in the morning? How do you think she goes to work? How do you think um, the, the boy uh, gets to go uh, to the playground and do other things? That's all Medicaid. And they'll say, well, wait a minute. Medicaid is a middle-class program. These are middle, this is a middle-class family. And how could they be on Medicaid? And you know, through those kind of conversations, which, which are one by one, um, people start to realize that um, these are vital, vital programs. And, that, and Congress ultimately responds to what they hear from their constituents uh, and the people that put them into office. And so helping people see and understand that, that these are real people, that we all know folks, that this is not invisible, that we can't sweep these issues under the rug, um, ultimately, I think, is, is, will make us more and more successful. I can certainly say that everything I've learned along the way around the needs of the disability community and the visits that I made to various uh, places around the country helped educate me and helped me make better policy. You know, Andy, I'm a media guy and a messaging guy, and uh, one of the things that we've been hearing from Republicans throughout uh, is that uh, these deep federal spending cuts to every single state are something that gives states flexibility. I'm doing air quotes here. What are they trying to say? Are they saying that the states can choose not to provide Medicaid services at all, or that they can choose to cut off optional services such as home and community-based supports? What are these senators actually saying when they use the word flexibility? So, Lawrence, if I, if, if I were ask, if I asked you to borrow $10, uh, which you were about to spend on lunch, and you gave me $10, and then I gave you a dollar back, and I said, go ahead and spend it anywhere you want. I, I don't care how you spend it. Did I do you any favors? I, I, think, that's, I think that's what really this flexibility thing is all about, which is um, to say, and look, n- no one will dispute uh, that, that, um, it, that healthcare is local and that decision-making uh, needs to be local, and that people who focus their resources and their decision-making local, locally will ultimately provide better services. But that's not what we're talking about here. What we're really talking about is a disguised cut. Furthermore, I'd also say that we learned yesterday that 
um, the Trump administration is stonewalling the state of Minnesota, uh, a Democratic state, on a waiver that they applied for. It's a waiver that's almost exactly the same as a waiver that was applied for in Alaska, which is a red state, that was approved. And this was a, the governor of Minnesota, which wrote a letter to the Trump administration basically saying what? Basically issued a letter saying that dealing with the Trump administration on quote-unquote flexibility and innovation and waivers was nightmarish. And, and I know a little bit about the process because I live in Minnesota, and I can tell you that, uh, that there's no reason uh, that, that this waiver shouldn't be approved. Uh, but so well, we, don't, we don't really have an administration, at least that I've seen, that wants to make things more flexible for states. We have an administration that is every bit wants to decide what they think is right and wrong, um, and yet wants to use the word flexibility as a pretense for cutting funding to needed programs. So a little bit of homework for people that they can take away when the Trump administration or the GOP uses flexibility. What would you say instead? I, you know, I think this, these are just these are just slash, slashing the Medicaid program so that it looks nothing like the program we know. So cuts to Medicaid, essentially. Every time you hear flexibility, think cuts to Medicaid. That's what I think. Flash, flash health care. Yes. A final thing. Uh, we tried to cover a lot of ground here in the short time that we've had. I'm wondering if there's anything that we haven't addressed during our conversation, a thought that you'd like to leave the disability community with. Well, I'm overwhelmed with gratitude with, for, for people in this community uh, and what you've been doing and what you've done already. And um, I know it's made an enormous difference. I try hard to do as much as I can to just keep up with many of the people on this call. So I'd ask that you keep keep doing it. Uh, everything you're doing is effective. Uh, and unfortunately, sadly, it's necessary. And I really look forward to the day when it becomes unnecessary. That's what we're all doing here. Thank you, Andy Slavitt, former acting administrator for the Centers for Medicare and Medicaid Services. Uh, we appreciate you taking some time out of your busy schedule to spend uh, with us here at The Dispatch. Uh, see you out there on Twitter. You got it, Lawrence. Thanks again. Okay. And it's a wrap for this, the first edition of The Dispatch from the Disability Rights Education and Defense Fund. That's DREDF, D-R-E-D-F. The Dispatch is written, produced, edited, and hosted by yours truly, Lawrence Carter-Law. We'd like to thank Ari, Rebecca, Julia, Erica, Alice, and Steve for their questions this week on The Dispatch. And a special thanks goes out to Jill Jacobs for the questions on Facebook that got the whole thing rolling. Music for The Dispatch is provided by Galen Lee, the 2016 Tiny Desk winner from NPR. You can find out more and listen to Galen Lee's music from violinscratches.com. Thanks again for joining us, and we'll catch you next time on... The Dispatch.